Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Hugh Elton for a conversation about what civilization was like in the Anatolian Peninsula in the 6th century CEAD. Dr. Elton is Professor Ancient Greek and Roman Studies at Trent University based in Canada. He's written many publications over his career, including a couple books as examples. He's a co-editor of the book, Asia Minor in the Long Sixth Century, Current Research in Future Directions, which was published by Oxbow Books. And he's author of the book, The Roman Empire in Late Antiquity, A Political and Military History, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to call, Hugh. Thank you very much, Andrew. Pleased to be here. All right. So can you, um, Hugh, please describe what, uh, so the Antolian Peninsula, can you describe for everybody where that would be um, on a map, if someone was looking at a a map? And can you uh, describe at a high level what the geopolitical environment was in the Antolian Peninsula in the 6th century? So that's two questions at once. So uh, first yep, question yep. so is, you know, we're in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and so um, what uh, professionals call either Asia Minor or Anatolia is roughly modern Turkey. Um, so that's all good sort of thing to have in your mind. The modern nation state of Turkey includes um, a, a small European part, which is not part of what uh, classicists think of as Anatolia. And then there's always a little bit of murkiness about whether the area around um, Antioch, uh, modern Antakya, um, is part of, is that part of modern Turkey? Is that part of uh, Anatolia or is that part of Syria? In ancient terms, it tends to be part of Syria, but it's also part of the story of Anatolia because it's such a big city in the southeastern part. And then in terms of Anatolia, um, we go out of, you know, up to sort of the area past Lake Van and to sort of the area around um, Ararat. So it's an enormous you know, amount of space uh, that we're talking about. And then in terms of uh, geopolitical, um, this is um, the area that is administered by the um, uh, late Roman Empire. So this is um, the same state as um, is sometimes called the Roman Empire, the early Roman Empire, the late Roman Empire, and the Byzantine Empire. This is all the same state. So at this point, the um, Rome is now um, occupied um, by the Visigothic Kingdom in the sixth century, um, and we have uh, the Roman Emperor living in Constantinople um, and administering all of the territory of Anatolia. So is that enough on geopolitical, or could I, do you want me to say more about? It's great. It's great, Hugh. I think it's a great first first uh, answer. Thank you. Um, so at the turn of the sixth century, to put a name to it from a uh, Roman em- em- emperor perspective, uh, Byzantine emperor, whichever one you want to use. Uh, who would the Roman emperor ha- have been at the at the turn? So coming into the sixth uh, century, right? That's Anastasius, who's emperor between four nine one and five one eight, um, and he's a very interesting guy. Um, in part because he um, takes the throne when he's uh, in his early sixties. Um, and the idea of you know, taking on the role of Roman Emperor in your early 60s, when many of us are starting to think about pipe slippers and retirement, and then taking on one of the most demanding jobs um, on the planet, um, I think is, is quite a remarkable thing. It gives a sense of you know, what sort of person this is, someone with a tremendous amount of drive 
um, built there. So that's, that's the guy at the beginning. Um, and then after that, we run through Justin, first, um, was it nine years? Then Justinian in the middle of the century. And Justinian is emperor between um, 527 and 565. So again, that's 38 years on the throne. It's a very long period of time. And then after that, there's a succession of more obscure you know, emperors in the last part of the sixth century. Okay. Um, so the the emperors in that period of time, did they predominantly, or would you say in all, all cases, um, principally ruled from Constantinople as a city? Um, almost entirely. Um, Anastasius, as far as you know, doesn't go more than sort of say 20 kilometers outside the city. Um, there are a couple of moments. Justinian makes um, a pilgrimage to Gomea in central Anatolia, uh, to the, um, the shrine of the um, sort of Archangel Michael. He, he does that, and that's quite an expedition for him to do. And there's a little bit of activity by Mauritius um, at the end of the sixth century when he's actually leading armies. But by and large, the emperor is living in the palace and in the city, and it's a very sedentary um, sort of thing, which is a very different model of imperial rule than, for example, in the third century AD. Okay, and probably an obvious question, but I want to get it in there. Uh, since Constantinople is across the Bosphorus Strait, uh, it's not considered part of the Anatolian Peninsula? Um, in the book that you mentioned, um, Anatol Asia Minor in the long sixth century, we had a chapter um, on Constantinople. It's not you know, physically part of the peninsula, but um, in terms of geopolitical arrangements, um, it's the capital of the empire and it administers um, Anatolia. Um, so there's a very, very intimate relationship. And um, if you go to Istanbul now, that you get across through sort of, um, your sort of bridges, tunnels, um, or ferries, they had lots of ferries in antiquity. So there's sort of, you, know, you could get a ferry probably casually across the, the water you know, any time, day or night um, in antiquity. So it's very closely connected. And in terms of ease of getting from central Anatolia to Constantinople, it's much easier to get there than it would be to get from Rome, for example, to Constantinople. So they're very well connected zones. Yeah, interesting. As I was asking the question, my, my mind was sort of visualizing the, the shape of Constantinople. And, uh, um, you know, today it'd be on the it's a much bigger city in in today's mm -hmm. terms, present day Ist Istanbul. So in in the in in the sixth century, would part of Constantinople, the actual what would be the considered the uh, the ur like the urban um, demarcation of it, would would it be also part of the Anatolian Peninsula if you speak from like a technical perspective? Um, no, it's all in in the sixth century. It's all on the European okay. side. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's a suburb at Sikai, uh, which is modern Galata, um, across the Golden Horn. Um, there's a modern bridge there. There was a bridge in antiquity um, and all your boats. Um, but there's the stuff at Chalcedon on the other side. Um, you know, that's all you know, part of a different city, different administration. Okay, fair enough. That's that's uh, that's helpful. Um, so. Uh... Kind of that to dovetail into something related. Then, can you describe then what the governance uh, structure was in the Anatolian Peninsula? You said that it was um, at a macro level being administered by the Byzantine Empire. So, when it comes to the actual administrating the Anatolian Peninsula, how do they set that up? 
Are you sure you want to ask that question? <laughs> should, I, should, I, should I preface it with, can you, is there a way to summarize? <laughs> yeah. Okay, Let's I'll, do, I'll do my best to yeah. keep this all um, The standard low-level administrative unit is the city. Um, cities are nominally self-governing with um, you know, their own council. How that works, it sort of varies you know, over time in ancient history, but that's the nominal unit. The bishop is particularly important in the 6th century as part of this. Um, cities are grouped together into provinces, which are ruled by uh, governors who are imperially appointed. Um, provinces are grouped together into dioceses, which are ruled by vicarii, um, who are imperially appointed. And there are three dioceses in Anatolia. And then um, the diocese um, all report the Praetorian prefect of the east. Um, and he's actually based in Constantinople, even though most of the territory that he's um, responsible for is in Anatolia and Syria. Okay. So that, that, that's well done. Lightning sketch of the levels. Yeah, you did great. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as you know, in the when Rome, the Roman Empire was in Rome, and also in the Roman Republic, there was consuls, um, mm-hmm. and then so that continued into the. Uh, the Roman Roman Empire when it was in Rome with an emperor as well. Um, so by this point in time, uh, when um, the Byzantine Empire, the the Roman Empire being being um, uh, ruled from from Constantinople, was there still consuls at play? Can you speak about that? And one other thing I want to add to that question. Um, so at some point during the Roman Empire, and again, part of your answer might say it still exists. Um, but uh, there, there was uh, what ha- what was common was someone would become consul, and then they would become a, a proconsul afterwards, and then they would you know they would go and be a, basically a provincial uh, a governor. That came up on a, a, a an episode with um, uh, Dr. Michael Kolakowski when we were speaking about one of the the emperors um, who was it Antonius uh, Antoninus Pius. Um, so, uh, who, who, who did actually, at, at some point, he was a pro-governor of uh, Asia Minor. So, can you speak about if that kind of concept still existed, consuls, and then after consuls, if there, if there was this concept of a pro-consul, etc.? Right. Um, there are still consuls up until early in Justinian's reign, and they, they stopped being used. But the role of the consulate um, it's strictly an honor given by the emperor to somebody um, so it's you know it doesn't have any administrative functions anymore there are duties involved with it in terms of giving your games in the capital so it's an expensive honor to get but it's a signal honor and the, the year is named after the the consul so that continues but in terms of the involvement of the aristocracy um, in a government, um, all imperial officials are appointed by the emperor. Um, so there's a traditional uh, aristocracy in both East and West, and that's the sort of stuff that Michael was talking about with Antoninus Pius, but um, they have become separated from the administration of the empire. So the families are rich, they have senatorial honours, uh, more so in the West than in the East, um, and many of them do become consuls, but most of them choose not to become actively involved in imperial administration. So it's a slightly different sort of office. So there still are proconsuls, although they weren't consuls when they were appointed. So um, you can just be made a proconsul directly. Okay, and was there was there a proconsul in the? Um, did that office exist in the sixth century for the Anatolian? 
Peninsula? Uh, yeah, there's still, there's still a proconsul of Asia um, at that point, which is the, uh, sort of the, the province right on the western part um, of um, Anatolia. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. What was, uh, what was everyday life? Um, in the in the Anatolian everyday life like in the Anatolian Peninsula in the sixth century, and it's a big big question. So we can you know we can spend a bit of, bit of time on it and and kind of work our way and uh, through through some of this. But but how would you describe it's the it's the it's people in the Anatolian Peninsula. It's a sixth century. How would you describe everyday life? The dwarf, the joke that historians always make about that is nasty, brutal, and short. Um, so. We usually say that around 80% of the population um, live outside cities and are involved in agriculture. So the, the typical thing is that people will be involved in farming of some sort, whether they're growing crops um, or running animals. So that's the, going to be the dominant feature for both men and for women, and uh, particularly for children. Um, and I had a, you know, a very interesting experience in class um, a couple of months ago when I was asking students about where they could fit children into um, an agricultural economy in Anatolia. And they were delightfully sort of you know, unable to think of jobs for small children to do on a farm, which tells you something wonderful about modern society in Canada. But, very able to um, you know, sort of small children will be out there looking after chickens, running goats, you know, scaring birds, and that sort of thing. Everyone will be working very, very hard. They'll be sunburned an awful lot of the time. Um, life expectancy is around thirty, which is the the age at which half of birth, birth cohort is dead. Um, so compare some modern sort of expectations of about sort of, sort of eighty um, or so. So there are plenty of older people, but many people don't talk you get to be much past 30. Um, so there's that. Um, diet is reasonably monotonous. Um, there's an awful lot of cereals. There's a lot of fresh vegetables, fresh fruit um, involved. Not huge quantities of uh, animal protein, um, but there would be a fair amount of pork um, involved in the diet, which is not part of modern Turkish um, diet. And that's a major cultural change with the coming of Islam. Um, but the, the Romans eat quite a lot of pork. Um, so pork, chicken, um, but not so much beef. Um, you know that. Um, and then a lot of this stuff is going to vary over space. Uh, if you're by the coast, there's going to be more fish and sort of those sorts of opportunities. A lot of uh, timber sort of, you know, working in there. In the interior, it may just be mostly cereals. So. Um, is is that enough of an answer? Is your, I think it's a, not asking more nuanced question. Oh yeah, yeah, I think oh, it's yeah. a yeah, it's a great answer. Yeah, we can unpack some stuff and go down different mm. avenues and stuff. Um, and you yeah. brought up you brought up food, and I think that's a very relevant um, item to, to to bring up. Um, so I want to bring up uh, beverages, uh, mm-hmm. and I'd asked a similar question recently in an episode in a different part of the Mediterranean about what people ate and and, and drank aside from water. So aside from water, what would have been common for people to consume as uh, as a beverage? Um, I think the your beer and wine would be very common. Um, you're much better off drinking something that's been sort of sterilised with some alcohol rather than uh, sort of water that's been standing around. If you get some fresh spring water, you know, that's fine. Um, but sort of, you know, if it's coming out of a well, it may be standing you know, for a while, all sorts of stuff you're in that. So a bit of alcohol is sort of you know, sterilises that. There's probably a fair amount of uh, yogurty-like drinks 
as well, the modern Turkish Iran, mm. um, which varies in thickness and consistency. Um, and I've had stuff that's had lumps floating in it with hair in the lumps. Um, and it's incredibly refreshing you know, on a hot day. Um, and that's easily producible um, culturally. Um, beer, um, you're probably a lot flatter than modern heavily carbonated um, beverages. And the wine is probably a lot more diluted than the wine that uh, many of us are accustomed um, to, to drink. And then you can grow um, sort of cereals all over Anatolia, so that's fine for the uh, the beer uh, production. Um, vines, it's tricky when you get much over a thousand meters or so. So there are some parts that are not going to have you know, their own production of wine and be having to import it. Um, and I think you really start thinking about or the ability to sterilize, preserve, and transport stuff that it's or your alcoholic grape juice rather than fine wine in many your know, occasions on the day-to-day -day, you know, stuff. Um, but I also suspect that they're drinking heavily watered wine all the time um, in the way that many of us just consume coffee you know, non-stop. It's not um, a strong drink. Um, and I say that partly through talking of thinking about other historical societies that all consume a lot more alcohol than we do at all times of the day. Do you have any sense of, and I, I could probably, uh, I really don't know the answer to, to this. I could probably Google it, but then someone's going to be hearing me uh, banging on my keyboard. Um, do you have any sense of uh, when coffee becomes available in the uh, in the Anatolian Peninsula? It's not, it's not at this point, right? No, it's not at this point. Okay. I'd, um, if it's, I'm going to have to, I'd have to Google it as well. If you, if you had to hammer your keyboard 17th. as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 16th, 17th century, something like that. All good. It's not in the, uh, it doesn't pertain to the century that uh, we're talking about uh, today. But I got interested uh, in that, you know, while we were, we were chatting here, right? And then you get into obviously Turkish coffee being so uh, famous, right? Yeah. Um, so, they, so the Romans do have, you know, hot water drinks. So you can make or herb teas of various sorts, um, but nothing that's all heavily caffeinated like uh, modern tea or modern coffee. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how, how accessible, so you did bring up water, um, you mentioned a few things about water, how accessible was water and, uh, and this is a hard, obviously a hard thing to measure. So feel free to speculate if, uh, if needed, but how hydrated do you think people were in this period of time? Well, accessibility of water, you, you can't have human settlements without water. So, um, you if there are people there, there's going to be water. Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's not like we're dealing with a Paleolithic and people come over the hill and say, can we live here? Um, is there water? In the Roman period, if there's a village, there is water. Um, mm -hmm. How hydrated are they? Um, I think that's a very 21st century way of thinking about stuff. Mm -hmm. um, all, they live, they die, they get married, they have families, um, they have enough water. Um, in terms of thinking about how people behave um i'm quite struck by the fact that um when i'm in uh, the mediterranean i always feel it's very very hot and i try not to run but then i watch turkish teenagers or greek teenagers playing football you know, mm. very very happily and i think it's if you're used to the environment you're a lot more tolerant of it than people who come in and um, modern academics tend only to see the mediterranean 
at the hottest part of the year uh, for short periods mm. of time. Um, and then there are the habits that we don't see. And for, you know, one of my habits when doing field work is uh, you know, at breakfast, I drink a lot of water. And then when you go out in the field, um, you have to worry less about drinking water during the day because I took on a couple of liters at the beginning. You know, I still take a bottle of water. And I suspect that these are habits that I can't see for the locals. I suspect the Romans are doing the same thing as a Roman farmer, that you drink a lot of water at the beginning of the day. Um, and therefore you have to worry less about water in the field. But they have water bottles and take them with them mm. as well. And although mm-hmm. their water bottles will do what mine does and it heats up over the course of the day as it goes up with air. And at the end of the day, it's a bucket of warm spit. And it's not much fun mm-hmm. in there, but it's better than nothing. And then um, they'll wear sort of hats and clothes with long sleeves and they'll have lunch in the shade. So all these little tricks that we do. So... Um, well, I, I don't think we can get any further than that in hydration you know, levels. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about, say, Mesopotamia, the primary sources frequently comment on it being particularly hot. But, you know, by and large, people don't say that sort of um, Anatolia is a particularly hot you know, zone. It's all, mm-hmm. you know, it's just mm-hmm. typical. Whereas Mesopotamia is often marked out as by people from the Mediterranean as being a very hot region. Okay, but uh, well, wells existed by this point in time. Oh yeah, yes. So okay. every every village will have wells with a fountain and this sort of thing, and so okay. um, access public access to water. Okay, um, you described that it was a very um, agriculturally driven environment. It sounded like. Um, yep. To what degree did urban centers exist? Uh, to you know how uh, plentiful were urban centers? And what was the relationship that urban centers had with uh, people that uh, were in the rural a- areas? Right. Um, the first part is the sort of stuff that professionals spend an enormous amount of time arguing very fiercely um, about. So number of cities in Anatolia, um, people will give you different figures between 200 and 600. Um, there's a lot of looseness in you know, definitions there. Um, size of the city, it's all mostly quite small. So when we talk about a city, it's a status and perhaps five to 10,000 is the, sort of the, the normal size of a city. So they're very small communities, ones in which most people know most people. Um, it does change over time. All of us would agree um, that at the beginning of the sixth century, the cities in Anatolia are in good shape. Um, one of the things that the, uh, the volume you mentioned about the 6th century really focuses on is what happens in the 6th century to cities. Um, again, all of us would agree that by the middle of the 7th century, cities in Anatolia are in a very bad way. But when and how do they decline is something that's endlessly uh, discussed. And so people, you know, well, you'll ask me in a minute about causes for that, so let's hold that, I suppose. Um, and then um, in terms of uh, relationship with the countryside, very, very intimate indeed. Um, so we have um, aristocrats own large amounts of uh, sort of, uh, country territory. They often um, display the wealth in town because there's no point in having you know, fancy stuff unless you can actually show the neighbours. And so the, the city is a place for political display and it's a place where you have churches, um, in the sixth century, and that's sort of a focal point for lots of people in the community and for the ecclesiastical hierarchy in terms of the bishop. But 
Um, we don't have refrigeration. Um, we don't have asphalt roads. There's no internal combustion engine. So getting fresh food in for people to eat requires this constant interchange between the city and the area um, around it. So there's um, your, your, the phrase that sometimes we use is agro-towns to describe mm. uh, Roman cities. And I think that, that's a good thing you know, to think with. Everyone is very aware of the uh, interaction between the city and uh, the countryside. Everyone knows that you grow food um, rather than just go to the store to buy it. Um, so a very, very different experience than people tend to have now. When we th- when we think about uh, contemporary times and contemporary cities, it's um, obvious to everyone why someone may live in in a in a city, um, and because we you know we're uh, we've been to cities right we we we've observed we understand sectors and all that kind of you know consuming stuff. But um, I don't want to approach the next. Um, I don't want to approach this conversation with that assumption because we're in the sixth century. So in the sixth century, why why do you think people uh, lived in in a, in in cities? Because they were born there. Mm. Um, you know, and all, there's far less social mobility than there is now, um, and so the, the choices available to 21st century uh, humans, uh, particularly in prosperous countries like Canada, are enormous. You can go anywhere and do anything. In antiquity, you tend to do what your father does. So there's very little social mobility, um, and most of that comes through government service, particularly armed service. You leave your village and join the Roman army and survive, then you have a chance of bettering yourself. But otherwise, there's not much opportunity for that. Um, so why would you be in the city? If you're doing for what we could uh, talk about, some sort of non-agricultural production, um, making pottery, or those in the countryside, carpentry, um, acting as, as all of your, um, a slave, or being a slave, which is not acting as, um, or, or being um, a servant of um, an individual you're in a city, that's all you know, employment, and that will come with food. Um, so those sorts of things, um, being involved in stonework um, and or being involved in uh, food um, production um, as in terms of cooking. So I often talk about um, the church construction as being an economic driver because you have to have people who cut stone and bring it uh, to the job site and that involves carts and animals, all of which need to be built you know, and then fed. So there's a major industry around those sorts of things. And then when it comes to actually building the church, you also need timber as well as stone, another industry there. And then putting a roof on it, uh, that's all you know, clay and baking the roof tiles. And then you have on the inside, you have lamps. Um, so glass production lamps, oil to fill the lamps. And then there are textiles. And then there's the clergy who need to be fed. So there's a massive amount of service industry in terms of supporting the, the, the smaller number of aristocrats in a city. Okay. How prevalent was maritime trade um, to Anatol- to the Anatolian Peninsula in this in this century? And uh, if it was prevalent, um, was there a, like a few or many certain centers that existed then along the coast that helped facilitate that trade? I wish I knew is the, the answer you know, to that. Yeah. I mean, there, there are yeah. a lot of people that have yeah. low ships and they sail them around. Um, yeah. So um, in the 6th century, Constantinople is fed uh, mostly from Egypt. 
So there's an annual supply of grain ships that come from Egypt in September to Constantinople. And then they come back. And so what are they doing? What are they picking up on the way back? Um, We've got a very interesting uh, customs inscription uh, from the reign of Anastasius uh, that talks about lower rates of taxes for wine, oil, and lard for people from Cilicia um, in southern Anatolia importing those goods to Constantinople. And so that's something we happen to have, but it's a window on the fact that there's a taxation regime that's levying duty inside the empire on certain sorts of goods imported from parts of Anatolia to the capital. And so we assume that there are other similar mechanics, things being moved around. So everywhere has got a port and a ship, but it also seems that we've got some inscriptions that often say that people say, I went to so-and-so 32 times or something like that. So it suggests that people have gotten a custom run that they make. Um, so instead of going anywhere, they just draw regularly sail from A to B and then B to A. And that makes a fair amount of sense in terms of thinking about it. And then in terms of selling the stuff that you've picked up as, um, as all, if you're a sailor, um, you need to have a market to go to. So you might be able to offload it at a small port on the south coast, but you're th- almost certainly expecting to go to Ephesus or Constantinople to guarantee selling the stuff that you bought. So that I think is the, the biggest driver. So a lot of it is going to be very, very local. And then um, some of the stuff uh, longer distance. So can you uh, describe to you what the, um, the, the major products that would have been uh, produced uh, in the Anatolian Peninsula, if you were to summarize sort of the main products that were produced and then and then also what the main products that would have been imported into the uh, peninsula would have been right in terms of what people made in um, anatolia it's almost entirely agricultural you know, stuff so there'd be vast productivity of um, wine olive oil cereals timber pottery all these mm. you know stonework all this domestic uh, sort of stuff for day to day in terms of anything that's really excited, for example, if you were in Rome in 500 and say, you know, is there a package coming in from Anatolia? It might have fine wine in it or some high quality olive oil, but there'd be nothing particularly exotic. Um, in terms of the stuff that is you know, interesting to be imported into Anatolia, we'd be looking about what's coming from the east. And so there we'll be talking about silk. Uh, which comes from China at this point. Um, and it comes in as raw silk and is then often dyed in the Roman Empire. And actually, you know, the emperor wears, um, you know, an aristocrat you know, wear very expensive, very light silk textiles. The emperor's stuff is purple, and that's dyed with um, you know, the murex shell. But, and there are murex beds um, in southern Anatolia. That some are pearline, which is a very nice site in Lycia. And then you also be talking about spices uh, coming in. Um, spices and textiles are good because they're high value and relatively low weight, and they're not perishable. So you don't want to import cereals from uh, China. Um, a lot of the exotic stuff would come in by boat um, into the Persian Gulf or into the Red Sea. Um, but some stuff does come in overland as well into what we call that, the, the Silk Road. Um, so there's that, and then you've got um, exotic animals. The Romans, unfortunately, are still doing beast hunting as uh, public entertainment in the sixth century. Um, so we've got movement of lions and leopards and bears, 
um, all of which you do get in Anatolia. There are also the elephants, and I'm fairly certain there's a giraffe that's brought to Anastasius's court um, in the sixth century as well. Um, so there's that sort of thing, and then there's a lot of intra-regional distribution of um, artifact, of uh, produced goods, particularly wine and oil, because when you have a good harvest in one area, another area may not have it. And um, particularly for wine, there are different qualities of wine, and people are very aware of that. So Anatolia is just a fairly typical agricultural um, zone, um, more of a consumer than a producer of exotic items, I think. Okay. Um... You mentioned military uh, duties um, in one, one of your answers. So can you speak about the uh, responsibilities that people would have had to military duty um, in terms of things like cons con conscription or, or other responsibilities that uh, they, they would have to the, uh, the Byzantine Empire? Most of the time, it's fairly similar to our world in that uh, military matters are the... Um, or the result of long service professionals. So there's not a great deal of conscription um, in antiquity. It's almost, it's mostly volunteers. Uh, there are people who are conscripted, but it's more that sort of a village will have to produce somebody um, or a contribution towards somebody. Um, and then, you know, they, they're, they're gone. Um, you know, if they follow the rules, they should be doing a 20 year uh, plus you know, hedge. And that means that you may never see them again. You know, when Marcus from your village leaves, Marcus may be gone and you may be dead you know, when or if Marcus comes back. But he may also take his wife with him. And we are very accustomed to this separation of uh, families on active uh, service. Um, and I think it's much more like a, a, a 19th century European army that actually there are plenty of women and children following the army uh, around. Um, particularly the habit you get in the Eastern uh, Empire is that um, there's much less separation in terms of military bases between the community and uh, the, the, the military unit. Um, so whereas we think of military bases as being separate objects, they're much more integrated into life. But the whole point of um, an empire is to provide law and order and justice and protection. So if you're on the Roman frontier with the Sasanian Persians in Mesopotamia, yes, you'll see an awful lot more military activity. If you're in Phrygia or Lydia, um, you may be concerned about your know, thieves, but you're not going to be heavily concerned about the security um, environment in terms of armies moving around. So... Um, 20 year or more uh, term uh, for, for duty was common mm -hmm. for military. In this yeah, the, uh, the, yes, um, the standard is set um, in the first century um, AD and it's all, you know, normally 25 years. There's some twiddles okay. around, but 20 or 25 years. And we do have tombstones of soldiers who clearly done you know, service um, a little bit like that. Um, I could look up, there's a couple of anecdotes about people who are doing that in the 6th century you know, AD. Um, so they're, they're still doing those sorts of long service things. Mm -hmm. And that's what, one of the things that makes the Roman army so um, effective is that it's able to build a lot of experience um, and then hold it in its own, your, your, um, your body because you've got a very slow interchange of humans. It's not like just recruiting a whole bunch of people in a hurry and then losing those skills. Um, yeah. And so they do recruit a whole bunch of people in a hurry for crises, 
Uh, but in terms of you know, normal your know, operations, it's a fairly sedate uh, sort of thing. And you know, probably much like most modern soldering, you know, 99% boredom in there, an awful lot of hurry up and wait sort of activity. Okay. So it was looked at more like a career than a tour of duty, would you say? Yes. I mean, yeah. yeah uh, it is an identity. You know, the, sort of, you, you, you are a sailor, a farmer, a It's not just a temporary sort of thing to be doing. And it's not something done by everybody. Yeah, it's not like in um, cer- certain countries contemporarily where citizens are required to do what, whatever it is a shorter but it's a shorter period of time it's it sounded like um, um, uh, cer- certain people in this period of time um, were required it, w- it was a career uh, like it was a uh, so okay let me ask let me ask about that then because obviously it's a career it uh, military is a, is a career for many people so was con- so the, the concept of conscription um, in the Antolian Peninsula uh, for these 20 or plus year um, uh, uh, cr- careers was 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 that did that occur from a conscription perspective? Were certain people required to serve uh, as a career? I hesitate slightly to be dogmatic about that, um, but only because this is an area I'm supposed to know quite a lot about. And there's a vast amount okay. of differing practices around. And the top level, the Roman state is determined to continue to exist. So it will break all the rules that are required in the case of any crises that are involved. Um, And then you can talk about what are typical practices. But unfortunately, uh, typical practices require us to have documentation, which tends only to come out of Egypt at this period. Next question then is, our practices in Egypt similar to those in Anatolia. And then when we get information about individuals joining the army in the sixth century, it's often contained in saints' lives, um, which are really interesting to read. But the objective of the writer is not to inform modern historians, but to talk about the, um, the development of the holy man or the holy woman and their relationship to um, the divine powers. So it's difficult to sort of be you know, bold about that. There is some conscription, um, but most of the time there isn't, um, is my sort of you know, diplomatic answer. People are certainly not walking around you know, expecting to be conscripted, but I think there's an understanding that there's a crisis uh, you you may be sort of required you know, to serve. Certainly, there's a fair amount of um, you know, grunt labour conscripted in terms of your know, preparations for wars, like working on roads, bridges, and you know, moving supplies around. And that's sort of you know, more short term. Um, but in, you know, it's certainly, for example, not like the Vietnam War, um, when the vast majority of young Americans were afraid um, or were likely to be. You know, conscripted. It's a very, very different environment. And it's certainly not like, say, the Punic Wars in the second century um, or third century BC, when there is a massive amount of uh, civic participation in the action of the state. Um, population um, figures, you know, maybe sort of 30 million in the Eastern Empire in the sixth century. Army size, maybe 300,000. So you're 1%, something like that. It's a small number of your people in the army. Okay. What was the religious orientation on the peninsula in this century? Um, the state is Christian. 
Um, every village has churches, and usually multiple churches. Every city has a bishop and multiple churches. Um, there are still a lot of pagans out there. Um, and so, the, say, the life of John of Ephesus, or John of Ephesus is sent as a missionary into Lydia um, by um, Justinian, and you know, boasts about converting large numbers of people and building lots of churches and monasteries. Um, so once you get away from urban communities, um, the old ways are still very much um, in place. Um, and then in terms of Christianity, um, We've still got the lingering um, impact of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And then so we have um, pro and anti-Chalcedonian groups. And up until the reign of Justinian, there's, there are continued attempts to bring the two groups together to keep a single church. And in the reign of Justinian, some of the anti-Chalcedonians give up on those hopes and they found their own church. So we often end up now having two uh, flavours of Christianity within the same um, city. Okay. Um, is there any, I am going to ask as a closing question soon, um, uh, sort of a before and after, so, so what it looks like at the end of the century before, and, and you had made a comment earlier about some, some change that occurs, I think it was in the context of urban centres, so that might be a time where you could fit, fit that in as you see fit. Um, but before, before we get to that uh, closing question, is there any major, I'm sure there was conflicts uh, during the century, we're talking 100 years, but was there anything major, any, any major conflicts or uh, occurrences or uh, events that, that occur that you think is important to highlight um, in the Anatolian Peninsula? Uh... Yeah, um, in the reign of Anastasius, there's um, a nine-year war in the mountains of um, Isauria, which is on the south coast, just north of Cyprus. Um, when Anastasius becomes emperor, the previous emperor's brother um, had hoped to become emperor. He's an Isaurian, um, and so, all, but that is why the tension involved is involved there. That's internal, but that's still real warfare with armies and generals and sieges that are taking place. Um, and then Anastasius has a war against the Persians between 502 and 506 um, in uh, northern Mesopotamia, which is part of modern Turkey, that area, like places like Edessa, uh, modern Urfa. Um, and then there's a lot, much larger war in the reign of um, Anastasius, uh, the reign of Justinian you know, later on. There's also some activity in the reign of Justinian up towards Lazica, um, the area towards the Georgian border. Um, but other than that, the sixth century, in general, it's reasonably peaceful. I wouldn't describe Anatolia as a war-torn zone, for example, whereas the Balkans uh, in the sixth century is a much more hazardous place you know, to live. If you see a dust cloud in Anatolia in Fire 22 on the horizon, you assume it's a party of hunters. You see it in the Balkans in Fire 22 and you run for your fortified zone because it's bound to be bad guys. Okay, a closing question, which I already kind of gave you a heads up. <laughs> so I'm sure you're maybe pondering it as you're answering. If uh, <laughs> um, okay, so uh, how? So if you were to describe, it's the end of the century. How would the um, civilization, and, and I say that broadly, how would civilization be 
the same or different uh, in, in the Anatolian Peninsula by the end of this century compared to uh, how it was at the start of the century? I don't think it'd be very much different. Many of my colleagues would tell me that I'm completely wrong, um, that either climate change or the Justinian plague or the dark event of 536 had uh, completely destroyed the fabric of society. And they would be arguing that urban centers are a lot smaller and a lot more decrepit. There's a lot of archeological work that's come out in the past decades that um, it picks at the holes of that sort of thing. And then there are other much or bigger questions um, about the way in which society is changing ideologically. And um, you know, this is the sort of thing that uh, I'm less you know, qualified to comment on because I tend to work with secular texts and think about archaeology. Um, but the Roman society continues to evolve and of you know, Justinian's reign is not quite like the reign of Theodosius II or Anastasius, and it's not like the reign of Heraclius either. It's a typical academic wishy-washy answer. You know, I'll, give, I'll give you that. Mm. Um, but it's when you ask a question about how Anatolia changes over the course of 100 years, we can ask that, but no one on the planet can experience you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And I think that's a very mm-hmm. interesting you know, sort of thing. So they're very aware of your know, changes in their own lifetimes, but they can't pick up these big rhythmic sorts of things that we can, and that are so much part of what we're trying to do. Okay. Uh, did you want to fit in the item from earlier about the evolution of the urban center? And it's fine if, if uh, it's not necessary. No, we can let that go. I think I covered that enough just now. All right. Awesome. Okay. It's uh, been great having you on the show, Hugh. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I very much enjoyed chatting with you, Andrew. So if anyone wants to uh, dig into this topic more, uh, Dr. Elton is co-editor of the book Asia Minor in the Long Sixth Century, Current Research in Future Directions. Uh, He's also author, as I mentioned earlier, of the book The Roman Empire in Late Antiquity, A Political and Military History. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Hugh and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.